Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your host, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. I'm delighted to be joined by Jorge Marti. He's at Secretariat of Hensa, Venezuela. Thank you for joining us, Jorge. It's a pleasure, as always. As we enter this era of post-pandemic, if you would, you know, in many countries, the restrictions have been lifted and um, most people are finally losing their fear of Omicron. There has been a lot of um, fear here in Canada, many people suffering from anxiety and so now this war in Ukraine has just increased the level of anxiety and ambivalence that people feel. And yet there is also this uh, possibility, right? I think for the Chinese, a crisis, the, the symbol for crisis is also the, crisis, the, the symbol for opportunity. And I think that we are facing a very real opportunity for us to see the nakedness of the capitalist system, right? How um, it funds itself, you know, regardless of what else is needed, right? Like we, we need money for healthcare, we need money for education, for housing, to end poverty. But suddenly, here's billions of dollars that we can send to war. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, not just the social movements that have been not dormant, but, you know, they have been like on stall because of pandemic, because of a multitude of challenges. How are those rebirthing and perhaps lighten up now that we are hopefully finding each other again and, and spending more time uh, in, in social spaces? Yes, I, I think that uh, the pandemic did have this uh, effect. No, for, for two years, nearly two years, most of the normal activities were stopped. And uh, there was a lot of discussions. This is true. And there were a lot of online meetings. People were questioning and asking questions. But um, yeah, the big movements that were taking place just before, they were put on pause for for a period of time, but I think that these these are now coming back, and we, they will come back with a with a vengeance. And apart from the ones that I have already mentioned, there's, there's the movement of uh, for the emancipation of women, for women's rights. There has just been a decision, for instance, in Colombia about uh, abortion rights, and this is an unstoppable wave in one country after another. People sometimes look at the one count one country and they only see despair and reaction for instance take take Poland in Poland the far right is quite strong there is a very right wing government and uh, and it's a country that's that's mostly dominated by reactionary nationalism and so on but nevertheless in Poland there was a big movement in defense of abortion rights millions of women and men and young people came out to defend uh, abortion rights. Then there was a, there was an all-out strike of the school teachers. So I th- I think that uh, we shouldn't be pessimistic. The, the the picture that I see is not one of a shift to the right and the rise of right-wing uh, ideas. That is only one part of the picture. What we see in reality is a polarization. Some people are moving to the right, but some other people are moving to the left. We, we shouldn't forget that uh, it's not, not so long ago we saw the Black Lives Matter movement in, in the United States, the most advanced capitalist country on earth, 
and I think it was 26 million people participated in one way or another in demonstrations. Uh, they had to bring the National Guard out on the streets. Uh, unprecedented. This is, you have to go back decades to see a thing like that. And I think that mood has not gone away. Uh, and we are in for some surprises. For instance, even the movement in, in Kazakhstan at the beginning of this year, which started as a workers' movement in the west of the country by uh, oil workers and so on, uh, protesting precisely against the increase in the prices of, uh, of fuel, energy prices, uh, in a country that's very energy-rich, and nevertheless the prices were going up. The, the ruling class has this idea that the class struggle is the result of agitators and, and rats infiltrating uh, this and that. But in reality, the class struggle exists. Whether there are rats or no rats or agitators or no agitators, the class struggle proceeds relentlessly. And it's this worsening of the conditions, is this, this inequality of wealth, is this inequality in the distribution of wealth, and so on. This is what creates this mood of questioning. And then finally, it reaches a point that it boils over and people come out on the streets and they demand and organize. If, if, let's say, the capitalism was in for a period of uh, st stabilization and economic growth, then, then many of these things will, will not happen. You, you could have a certain, uh, a certain period of calm and reformism. But this period of crisis of capitalism, of imperialist wars and so on, is, is also a period of revolution. No, there's no doubt about this. I'm glad that you pointed that out. You know, I was reading um, a little tweet about how in some parts in the States, like San Francisco, for instance, they've stopped prosecuting people for crimes that are less than $800. And not that I'm condoning that kind of acts, but when we ignore the suffering of people when we ignore the people who are hungry who are homeless who are you know eventually i think there is a tipping point where people lose their fear and and i think that we're at that point now where so many people have been left jobless so many people have lost their businesses so many people have lost their homes and now instead of having reparations instead of having some kind of support um, the governments are investing to go to war and to strengthen NATO in, in the war against Russia. So clearly, um, we're getting the wrong message here. And it's not that we don't know that empire does that. It's not that we didn't know. But I think it's becoming more evident for people who were not asleep, but really very busy working three jobs and trying to survive. And now they're finding that even that is not enough, you know, with the inflation and the cost of housing. When you look at Latin America, what do you see in terms of our social movements in Latin America? There has been some very exciting changes in the last year, despite all the, you know, U.S. propaganda and uh, and, and sanctions against Venezuela yes. and... I see two two different things going on. First, some really big movements that have, uh, have changed countries that seemed where nothing seemed to be able to change, like like for instance the national strike in Colombia last year, and uh, and obviously the big movement in Chile two years ago. But uh, on the other hand, I also see uh, the limitations of some of these progressive governments that have come to power. For instance, in Peru, we had the election of uh, Castillo in July last year, 
And uh, I mean, Castillo is a, is a teacher, teacher trade unionist, and he was elected on the basis of uh, radical change, uh, changing basic, changing fundamentally the conditions of uh, people. And he promised to take on the big multinationals, the mining and oil multinationals. And he said, if they are not prepared to renegotiate the contracts, we'll expropriate them and so on. But unfortunately, he once he came to power, he started moderating, moderating his uh, language. He put a uh, person in the Ministry of Finance, Pedro Hanke, who was uh, uh, basically uh, a tool of uh, big economic interests. And then there was pressure. There was a lot of pressure on him on the part of the, of the multinationals part of the United States, the capitalists in Peru, and he, and he didn't have a big majority in parliament. So he started uh, moving to the right. He dismissed his government, he dismissed his premier, and then uh, he put another one that was more moderate, and then the capitalists were not happy. They put more pressure on him, and I don't know, there's been about four changes of government, each one more to the right. And also, for instance, the, the election of Boric in Chile, which is obviously a major change in, in Chilean political history. But at the same time, he then goes on to form his government. And his government is composed mainly, or, or in some key ministries, there are people who belong to the old uh, regime, you know, the, the old Socialist Party of Bachelet, who was in power implementing neoliberal policies. Uh, they got the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who's someone who was very critical uh, of Cuba and Venezuela, they got the Minister of Finance, who used to be in the Central Bank, and uh, and so on. So I will say that um, if you come to power on the basis of a mass movement and hopes for big change, but then you you remain within the limits of the system, very quickly you will find that uh, these limits are very very limited, they're very narrow, and you will end up uh, implementing the same policies. That's why. Uh, uh, the lesson that needs to be learned is that it's not, not enough to take power or to win an election. It's necessary to change, fundamentally change the economic system to overthrow capitalism. Capitalism cannot be managed, particularly not in this time of crisis, cannot be managed for the benefit of the majority. Uh, the whole system needs to be challenged. And if you, you, you don't have that clear, you'll end up making... Uh, Concessions. I think that's some of, of what's been uh, discussed in Latin America today on the basis of these uh, on the basis of these experiences. Same, same with the Argentinian government of Fernandez and Fernandez uh, uh, came to power on the basis of rejection of the Macri government, which is a right a vicious right wing government, and it's ended up signing a deal with the IMF, which I think is a deal that uh, the workers will have to pay for, and the situation is quite bad. So. Yeah, this is not is not enough to bring governments to power. That uh, governments that verbally at least attack neoliberalism, because what, what needs to be removed is is the capitalist system itself. There's, there should be no illusions that capitalism can be managed a little bit better, uh, a little bit more in favor of the of the of the masses of the workers and the poor. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I often um, remind people is that all capitalism is not equal. Like it's, you know, I mean, that it, when you see it portray, we are told capitalism of the Netherlands or the capitalism of, you know, some very, uh, where, where the workers have, 
some semblance of protection. But that's not the capitalism we experience in Latin America. That's not the capitalism we're experiencing. Indigenous people are experiencing in Canada. You know, it's a, it's a very ravaged uh, form that displaces, that constantly causes hunger and, you know, pauperization of the population. Um, many people may not yet understand what we mean when we say the IMF. Can you just quickly uh, explain why that institution is so dangerous and, um, you know, aggressive towards the workers? Well, basically, the, the IMF is the, is the tool of, uh, is the arm of imperialism. Uh, they, they basically enter a country on the basis of maybe loans and so on, but these loans come with conditionalities. And these conditionalities are based on the following one, the opening up of the markets, which basically means that these, uh, these countries, which have been dominated by imperialism for many years, not been able to develop their own industries, they now have to compete with the industries, the products from the industries of the developed countries, which have uh, much more advanced technology. This is not a fair competition. And this is not really the opening of the markets, but it's the looting of these uh, countries. Uh, the second is the, the privatization of the of the state-owned uh, companies in all fields, uh, banking, telecoms, water, electricity, everything. Everything that can be sold for profit is, is sold to big multinationals so, so that they can expand their markets and increase their profits. And then the sale-off of uh, natural resources, uh, whether it's uh, minerals, soy soybeans, uh, copper, iron, now lithium, oil, gas, all of this is taken over by big multi. This is the basis of the policies of, of the IMF, and these policies are imposed on the basis of uh, economic blackmail. If you don't accept these policies, we won't give you any financing. We'll, we'll destroy your interest, you, you, and then you'll have to pay more interest rates for, for loans somewhere else, for credit somewhere else, and, uh, and so on. And if that's not enough, then, then uh, the United States intervenes, changes the government, either through a military coup or a campaign of pressure, sanctions, uh, whatever, until they get the, the way and these economic policies are implemented. They, they are basically the hitmen of, uh, of, of capitalism, the economic hitmen of, of capitalism. And they are they're basically implementing the, the mechanisms of, of imperialist economic domination. That's what, that's what it is. Um, can you talk a little bit about the connection between uh, the abolition of slavery and the loans, the odious loans that were imposed on people like Haiti, for instance, and how as a condition of the IMF, you have to pay those loans, those, that debt, that external debt, that so-called we owe empire for not being, for calling ourselves free people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the case. This, this mechanism of uh, debt is a mechanism of, uh, of enslaving the, the, the peoples of these, uh, of these countries. Uh, not, not only the, the debt comes with uh, onerous uh, interest, but as I said, it comes with strings attached, with, with, uh, with a commitment to carry out certain policies. And this happens regularly. There was the big debt crisis at the end of the 1980s. And uh, basically, these countries were, were so indebted to the West that finally the West had to uh, write off some of these 
some of these um, loans uh, to no loss of themselves because they had already been paid many times uh, over and they wrote them off so that these countries were in a position to get into that again. Uh, the case of Haiti that you mentioned is, is very clear when Haiti won independence. They were lumbered with a whole number of uh, debts that came from the colonial uh, era from the from the French, and that's why Haiti is today one of the poorest countries in the in the continent. I, I also don't like this this way of posing the thing. These countries are not really poor. These countries are very wealthy in terms of uh, the the natural resources that they have. Um, the, the intelligence and uh, strength of their own resilience of their own people. They're very wealthy. They are made poor. They are impoverished by the exploitation of, of imperialism. That's, that's the real relationship. You listen to Latin Ways. To support our work, please visit latinwaysmedia.com and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month. Thank you for listening. So there is many layers to this, you know, and yet through all this oppression and repression, people are so resourceful and resilient in, you know, and we see it, um, perhaps the example of, of Argentina comes to mind, uh, in recovering and regrouping and uniting to create something new. Can we talk about some of your most inspiring uh, memories of this? And as we come to a close, uh, perhaps the urgency for us to never lose our responsibility to engage, to connect, to defend and protect life. Yeah, for, for me, one of the most uh, inspiring experiences is what, what happened in Venezuela in uh, 2001 2002 in that that uh, that end end of 2001 beginning of 2002 when when president chavez implemented a, a series of 47 enacting enacting laws enabling laws whereby he implemented uh, agrarian reform the state control over the oil company and so on and this was responded by the ruling class with a with a lockout of the oil industry, i.e., the bosses, the high high paid engineers, and so on, they left, they sabotaged production, and they closed down the company. And this was very serious because uh, Venezuela is heavily dependent on oil, and government revenue is extremely dependent on on oil sales. So this was basically blackmail. They wanted to bring down the government, and they said so openly. And this did not happen. And why did it not happen? Because there was massive resistance on the part of the people, and including the oil workers. The oil workers occupied the installations themselves, and they started running them under workers' control. And they had to use all the ingenuity and, and skills in order to reverse all the different uh, processes that had been sabotaged. And, and we're not talking here about, I don't know, a small textile factory that is taken over by the workers. We're talking about Pedevesa, the oil company in Venezuela, which is run on the basis of satellite computerized systems. And the workers proved that they could run that, that company much better than, than, the, than the bosses and the directors had, uh, and the foremen had, had done before. And uh, I think that this is one of the most striking examples of workers' control that we have seen, in, certainly in the 21st century, but, but uh, for a long period of time. And that just uh, is a demonstration, if one was needed, 
that it is the working class that makes uh, the economy run. It's not the capitalists. The capitalists are parasitical. They don't do anything. Uh, they just uh, move figures across uh, a computer screen, investing here and there in the process, destroying the lives and livelihoods of millions of people. But it's the workers that create wealth. And, and, and they don't need the capitalists to create wealth. And so basically that's, that's the vision that, that I have. That's the vision that we as socialists should have. The vision of a world where the wealth that is created by workers is created on the, on the basis of need, on the basis of the needs of the majority, not the private profits of a, of a minority. And, uh, and this is possible. If it, if it can be done in Pedevesa, oil company in Venezuela, it can be done anywhere, in any part of the economy, in any country around the, the world. And on that basis, there will be no need for wars of imperialist uh, aggression. There will be no, uh, no hunger, no suffering, and there will be enough resources for housing, for education, for healthcare, for everyone to be able to have a decent, uh, a decent life rather than the, 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 the valley of sorrow and suffering that capitalism is in, 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 the, in, the, in the 21st century. There's no need for, for this. This is a rotten system. It should be swept aside. And the sooner the better. How has the contribution of women um, play out in the re revolutionary process in Venezuela? Well, obviously, we, women are 50% of the population, and in the case of the Venezuelan Revolution, they have played a decisive uh, role. They, uh, the main organizers in most of the barrios, either working-class neighborhoods, where, where, which are the strongholds of the, of the revolution, they played a key role in the defeat of the coup on uh, April 13, 2002, and they have been uh, the backbone of all the Bolivarian organizations that have existed in the different uh, periods of the revolution, the Bolivarian circles, the Bolivarian uh, units, the UBCs, and, and so on. Uh, women are amongst the most oppressed sections of society, and in their everyday life, they, they, uh, they are bogged down with their responsibilities, uh, caring the families and so on. But when there is a revolution, all the energy and the creativity comes to the fore, and uh, because they uh, have had to suffer doubly under capitalism, the, the oppression or the class oppression and the gendered uh, oppression, they come to the fore fighting like, uh, I don't know what, what's a good comparison, fighting like lionesses uh, at the forefront of the revolutionary process. And this has certainly been the case in, in Venezuela on all aspects, not, not only in the, in the popular movement in the neighborhoods, but also in the workers' movement. I've seen some outstanding working-class leaders, including the women of the Gotcha textile factory that resisted for, for nearly 10 years of workers' control, and uh, in, other, in other factories and, and uh, installations, trade unions and so on, where, where women workers have played a, a decisive role. And nevertheless, in terms of women's rights, perhaps is one of the, of the areas in which the Bolivarian Revolution has achieved uh, less in terms of reproductive rights and other things like this. There's still much to be done. And I'm, uh, and I'm glad to see that now there is a big national debate about this question, which has been brought by advances in Chile, in Argentina, in Mexico, and in other countries. Now the debate about abortion rights which has finally arrived in Venezuela. Thank you so much for all the ways that you not only keep uh, informed and 
abreast with social movements, not just in Latin America, but also to remind us that workers are workers, you know, and we need to align our interests with each other rather than with corporate interests. Um, what inspires you as you see the war in Ukraine unfolding and um, the massive aggression that can sometimes polarize people into camps of right and leftists? Yeah, I mean, war, war is a time, particularly at the beginning of any war, where nationalists, the fog of nationalism and nationalist poison penetrates all layers of society and everyone is intoxicated by, by it. And at the beginning of a war, there's not much worker solidarity or anything like this. But I'm totally sure that uh, once this wears down, the real interests of working people will come to the fore. And there are even now glimpses of what that will look like. For instance, yesterday I was watching the news and I think it's over a million people now have had to leave Ukraine fleeing from war and destruction. And uh, many of them are arriving in Germany and they, they showed these images, these trains full of people who were arriving in the Berlin Central Station. And there were queues of people, masses of people with signs saying, I can take four refugees, I can give long-term housing to two people. And the people were distributing themselves and uh, they were helping the refugees and, and there was no refugee left without, without a place to stay. And this was an effort, the rank and file, ordinary working people who had seen uh, the destruction in Ukraine in the TV screens and the, the immediate the immediate instinct was solidarity. This is the real uh, human nature, solidarity with your fellow uh, working uh, working man or working woman who's suffering like, like uh, you or perhaps in worse conditions. And if you have something to offer, you, you do. You share it with your, with your fellow human uh, being. This is the real human nature, not, not the dog-eat-dog ideology that capitalism tries to foster through education and, uh, and the family and, and religion and the mass media and the governments. No, the real human nature is when people come together to achieve things and to help uh, each other. And this is really the basis of, uh, of socialism, a different type of organization of society that uh, is based on the needs of the, of the many. And uh, I think that's, that's inspiring that in, in the middle of all this destruction, uh, people can come together to help help each other out. Mm. Thank you so much for being with us. For people who would like to access your work and get in touch, how could they reach you? Yes, uh, it was a pleasure for me as always. And uh, yeah, the people can reach the Hands of Venezuela campaign through our website, www.handsofvenezuela.org, or look us up on social media, Hands of Venezuela. And I'm also on the editorial board of the In Defense of Marxism website. And you can also look, at, look us up on social media. And our website is uh, marxist.com. Uh, because we think that uh, it's, not, it's not enough to be angry. It's not enough to be angry at injustice, at imperialism, at war, and so on. It's, it's necessary, first of all, to understand why this is happening. And we think that uh, Marxist ideas are a very good place to start. But Marxism is not just about interpreting the world, but, but transforming it, getting involved in uh, the workers' movement, in social movements, in order to, to achieve a better world. So I yeah, encourage everyone to look at, this, uh, look at these websites, handsofvenezuela.org, marxist.com, and um, 
yes, get angry, get informed, and get organized. Thank you again for being with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.